studying Luke 11 together. I'd like to invite you to turn with me once again to that chapter for our last visit. (laughs) And the final verses, verses 37 to 54. Luke 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. You know, we've been looking at this whole um, circumstance surrounding Jesus uh, casting out a demon of mutinous from a man and the crowd's allegation, first of all, that he did this by the power of the prince of demons, which, of course, is ridiculous, and Jesus uh, pointed it out to be ridiculous. And then uh, some in the crowd said, well, we need a sign, we need some proof, we need evidence that uh, you're speaking with authority and Jesus uh, responded to that request for a sign. And about this time, it was probably about the midday or or middle of the day time, uh, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to come for lunch. And he made the invitation along with several other Pharisees and some of the scribes. The lawyers mentioned in this passage are not the way we think of lawyers, people who go to court and represent us or uh, fill out wills or handle legal matters like that. But these were scribal lawyers who interpreted the law of Moses and and, uh, explained its meaning and went into great depth as well regarding the traditions of the rabbis. In other words, they expanded the uh, law of Moses uh, into many other things. So this Pharisee and his friends invited Jesus to come and have lunch with them. And uh, as they uh, come into the house, uh, the table is there. We presume that uh, it was being prepared for the meal. And all of the Pharisees and scribes gathered around the basin that was put there for this purpose so that they could go through the ceremonial cleansing and washing of their hands. Jesus walked right by it and went to sit down uh, or recline at the table. Remember, their tables were low, and they kind of reclined on cushions. And he ignored the the laver, the basin of water that was there, and went to uh, sit down for the meal. This astounded the Pharisees and the scribes. They were just shocked at uh, this behavior. And so uh, we have the scriptures opening in verse 37. When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed his hands before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and platter, But inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity. Then all things are clean for you. You have to ask yourself the question, why would Jesus be so insulting to his host? I mean, how many of you, when you were invited to someone's house for lunch, would immediately go in and start picking apart their religious practices, or criticizing the art they had on the wall, or making fun of uh, some religious symbol that might be on your coffee table? 
Yeah, you wouldn't. It's like, what is he thinking? Furthermore, you have to ask the question before that, why would he ignore the ceremonial washing that was customary? And I have to take the passage and stepping back from it, look and think to myself that Jesus, first of all, he's being invited to the home of a Pharisee who is not really humbly seeking truth, but wanting to find out what's making Jesus tick and kind of get into the situation a little more uh, from, from a political and an academic perspective. We know this from all of the experiences that Jesus has had with these folk. And I have to believe that Jesus intentionally bypassed the labor, the, the, the pitcher and the water. That He intentionally bypassed it and went straight to the table in order to provoke the very conversation that follows. Because He had something the Pharisees needed to hear And here's the perfect object lesson for pointing it out. Now, I want you to get get the setting in your mind to see how how this might have looked. Um, And perhaps some of Jesus' disciples were with him uh, as well. But they would come into this room. The Pharisee would have had a nicer kind of home because he would have been more wealthy. That was pretty typical of them. And he would have had a nicer home and a bigger room. And as they came in the doorway, there would have been a table with a, a pitcher of water and a bowl. And all of the Pharisees that he had invited and the, and the scribes are standing around, you know, this table. And they're going through this ritual washing. It may interest you to learn that this washing that they are doing was never prescribed in the Mosaic law. It is not a part of God's requirements. It's never prescribed in the law. The only thing that comes close is in Exodus chapter 30, where God says that there is to be a basin of water prepared between the the court and the tabernacle, uh, that is the holy place, where the priest went in and ministered. And when they went in, they would uh, take care of the, the showbread, they would take care of the candelabra, they would take care of the altar of incense representing prayer. Uh, they would go in and minister in these things. And it was required of God that they wash their hands and feet, symbolizing um, purity, that they were entering God's presence with, with clean hands and a pure heart. And so in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21, this prescription is made. There is also in the Levitical law that if you touched a dead animal or something like that, you needed to wash your hands. Doesn't that make good sense? But um, and, and the law, and the way the Levitical law was worded, you will be unclean until evening. Well, yes, ceremonially unclean, but really unclean. I mean, you've got a problem because you're, you're handling something that's decaying and. You may have bacteria. They didn't have any clue what bacteria was, but I'm sure God did. And uh, he wanted them to wash after handling a carcass of some sort. So, that's some of the background. Well, the the rabbis in their traditions in the time between 
um, the return and restoration of Israel after the exile and the time that Jesus appeared on the scene, wanted to be sure that Israel never again departed from the law of God. They wanted to be sure that they did not get uh, wrapped up in idolatry again. And so many of the rabbinic traditions would extrapolate the law in ways that would remind the people of their need to put God first. And, in fact, if you talk to an Orthodox Jewish person today, they will tell you that loving God is equal to keeping the law. The way you show love for God is by keeping the law. And so the rabbis developed these traditions that would enable the people to focus on God. Let me just pause parenthetically and say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with developing a habit or a ritual or a symbol that helps you get in touch with the spiritual depth underneath it. I think I shared with you not too long ago my friend who was a Lutheran pastor and what he went through when he would put his robe on on Sunday morning. For him, he was not just putting on a fancy robe to go out and preach. For him, the, the, the putting on of that robe was a reminder that he needed the power and anointing of God to preach the gospel And that action that he went through was his way of remembering to ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he would go in God's power as he went before the people. If you happen to be a preacher and you're about to preach a message and there's something that helps you remember that you can't go out there in your own strength, that's not a bad thing. But all too often, things that start out well... Uh, go off the wire in due time. If not within your own life, they go off the wire in the lives of people that pass them down. You've all heard about uh, the question, you know, um, why do you cut the end off the pot roast? You know the answer to that? How come you cut the end off the pot roast? Well, my, my mother cut the end off the pot roast. So you go to your mother, why did you cut the end off the pot roast? Well, my mother cut the end off the pot roast. So you go to your grandmother and you say, why did you cut the end off the pot roast? And your grandmother says, because my pan was round and it was too short and I couldn't fit the pot roast in the pan. So she started by cutting the end off of every pot roast. Well, that got handed down and nobody knew why it was done anymore. In fact, it wasn't necessary anymore. You're just losing a good piece of pot roast, you know. (laughs) Like, why are you doing this? Well, people have a tendency to lose track of of the meaning. Somewhere along the line, one of the rabbinic schools decided that if it was good for the priest going into the tabernacle, it was good for the people going to eat. Now, actually, there were seven times during the day or seven reasons during the day why you should wash your hands. I'll leave it to your imagination to fill in the blanks. But they had other reasons for that besides eating. But among them was the breaking of bread. And so before a meal, 
it was prescribed by the rabbinic tradition that they follow a practice called netilat yadayim. And that meant the washing of hands. And they would come to the labor and there would be a pitcher. I'm going to let my water bottle symbolize a pitcher. And they would have to pick it up in their right hand and transfer it to their left hand and pour it over their right hand. The quantity to be poured was about the equivalent of one and a quarter boiled eggs. So you got to get that. you got to figure out what one and a quarter boiled egg is, okay? So you pour that over your right hand, and then you would set it down. And then you would pick it up with your right hand and pour it over your left hand. And then you would set it down. And then you would rub your hands and shake it off. And then you would pick it up with your right hand and transfer it to your left hand and pour it over your right hand. And then you would set it down. And then you would pick it up with your right hand and pour it over your left hand. And then you would set it down. And then you would rub your hands and wring it off. And then you would pick it up with your right hand and and transfer it to your left hand and pour it over your right hand. And then you would set it down. And you would pick it up with your right hand and pour it over your left hand. And then you would wipe your fingers together and shake them off and take a towel and dry them. And then you would hold your hands at the level of your eyebrows and you would say the blessing of Nittalat Yadayim, which was uh, essentially, Blessed art thou, O God, who has given us the ritual of hand washing to make us pure. And then you could go sit down to the table. Can you imagine if there were five or six Pharisees and two or three lawyers going through this, how long it could take you to eat? I mean, you might be there all day. You talk about people that have long-winded blessings. Good grief. This could take 30, 40 minutes to get to the table. Jesus just bypassed it. It had nothing to do with whether or not you should wash your hands before you eat. For the Pharisee, it had everything to do with being spiritually pure before you broke bread. And as far as they were concerned, because they had followed the ritual, they were spiritually pure and therefore justified in eating the bread that God had provided. And Jesus said, and I think this is where we slip into the metaphor, He said, you clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You need to practice the giving of alms or charity from within, and then you will be clean. Now, what he was driving at in this statement was that the Pharisees were very proud of their status. They were very proud of their uh, position within Israel. They were typically wealthy people. They had a lot of material possessions. They were always looking to get ahead. And they felt this was justifiable because they were so spiritual. That's why God was blessing them. They were spiritual people. That's why they had so much. And they deserved the recognition they got. They deserved the the, um, reverence they received. They deserved to have what they had. And Jesus said, I see nothing but bad agenda, bad motives, bad heart inside of you. You are wicked and and robbers on the inside. 
You need to take into account the needs of the people around you. James tells us much later that pure religion and undefiled is this, to, to give attention to the widows and to the orphans, to take care of those who have need, to make sure that they are not neglected. The Pharisees had no such inclination. But he said to them, from the heart you are motivated to bless those and care for those who have legitimate need. Then there's real religion, real spirituality inside of you. And that coming out makes you clean as a person. It's not what you do to the outside. It's what comes from your heart that determines your true spirituality. And so I believe he neglected this. I'm not sure that it was all that important to him anyway, obviously, but I think he purposely uh, snubbed it as he went to dinner with the Pharisee to intentionally provoke the conversation that, that followed. It was just too obvious to be otherwise. And then he begins to pronounce woes to these Pharisees. And I'm just going to hit the high spots if you follow with me. Uh, three woes to the Pharisees, and then uh, three woes to the lawyers. Woe to you Pharisees! You pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden, garden herb, but disregard justice and the love of God. These are things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like concealed tombs. The people who walk over them are unaware of it. Jesus is pointing out that the the religion of the Pharisees was a religion of legalism that paid great attention to the picayunish little points, but neglected much weightier points. If you have a garden, and in your garden you have an herb garden because you probably have that separate, maybe not, but perhaps you have it in a special location, you know that the herbs are the smaller portion of your garden. And uh, what he's saying is, you pay attention. I'd like to know how much money they spent on their scales to make sure they were giving exactly 10%. You know, that they would weigh... Uh, these herbs, these little things of mint and rue and every garden herb, uh, they would sprinkle out their harvest on the scale and figure out what 10% was, and they would make sure they tithed exactly 10%. Jesus said, it's not that keeping the law, that, that you should ignore it, you should do that. I don't think he meant they should do it the picayunish way the Pharisees did it. But you should do that. But you have neglected justice and love of God. You make sure that you get the 10% of your mint just right. But when it comes to justice, you, you ignore the poor. And you run over those that deserve justice and righteousness. You ignore them. And and your heart is cold toward God. You're not loving God or loving His people. You just love yourselves. They had a danger of spiritual pride. 
They, they were in the midst of it. You love the respectful greeting in the marketplaces and the chief seat in the synagogue. You know, a Pharisee would come into the local synagogue and one of the uh, attendants of the synagogue would usher them down front and say, here, you sit here in this prime location. We want you to have the first and the best seat in the house. James, again, criticizes that. He says, you tell the poor to sit in the back and you want the people who are very privileged and financially wealthy, you want them to come down front and have the chief seats. And he says, you are ungodly in your heart because you, you have a completely jaundiced eye. You look at it all wrong. The Pharisees loved that. They loved the attention. They loved the, the respect that people paid them in the marketplace. I don't have time to go off on my tangents that I did in the last hour, but uh, there's just so much there about um, spiritual leaders. Yeah, just self-centered. He said, people can walk over you like graves and not even know they're there. There's one of two interpretations to that. Either they became ceremonial unclean, or worse, they fell in. Because the top was still intact, but uh, the rot had eaten away underneath. And <laughs> He said, you're the kind of people that bring people into the place of death. Now, if I had been a lawyer present in this accusation, this, this preaching of Jesus to the Pharisees, Every second grader knows when the teacher's on a rampage, you want to slink down in your seat and not be noticed. I mean, everybody knows that. And if I had been a lawyer there, I think I would have been trying to get under the table. You know? But this guy raises his hand. What an idiot. He raises his hand and says, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. And like, you're picking on the lawyers. And Jesus says, glad you brought that up. And woe to you lawyers. I, I just, to me, that's one of the funniest things. In, in the midst of all this series, since that is one of the funniest things. This guy did not realize when he was ahead. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves won't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Really? Pick it up with the right, pass it to the left, pour an egg and a quarter over your hands, set it down, pick it up with the, with the left. No, pick it up with the right, give it to the left. No, you've got to pour it over the left. You see how easy it is to get confused. You remember me telling you the story of all the different ways you could break the Sabbath, some 600 and something rules you can't spit on the dirt on the Sabbath, but you can spit on a rock. You remember why? If you spit on a rock, it evaporates quickly. But if you spit in the dirt, it makes mud. Mud is a component of mortar. Mortar is used to lay bricks. So you're working on the Sabbath if you spit in the dirt. But you can spit on a rock. It's like, really? The lawyers sat around and thought this stuff up. They were like people writing the tax code in our country. I mean, they just go on and on, and on. Do you know how much shelf space the tax code takes up? Nobody knows all of it. 
Even the IRS doesn't know all of it. You know, if you call them up, by I'm, I'm on a bunny trail now. <laughs> but you know, if you call them up, they have a disclaimer. We are not responsible if we give you the wrong information. It's like, because the average IRS person doesn't know all the rules. There's just too many. And Jesus says of the lawyers, He says, you, you've got this, all these laws, all these rules, all these regulations... You yourselves won't even touch them. You can't even keep up with all of them. And he says, You build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Your witnesses and approved the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them... They will kill and some they will persecute. So the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. You realize how much like them we are. We build monuments to our great political figures. We build monuments to heroes. Uh, we, We remember with reverence great spiritual leaders and totally forget what they gave their lives for. We end up doing the same thing that what they were fighting in their day was. We, we find ourselves guilty of the same thing. This has been President's Day, Week, whatever, this month. And we remember Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And we remember Lincoln most famously for the Emancipation Declaration. But does prejudice still lurk in our hearts? Does the very thing that he literally gave his life for and for which we have built a monument to obliterate and eradicate in this country, does it still lie in our hearts? You see what Jesus is getting at? He says to the lawyers, you guys build, uh, you build the monuments to the great prophets. But you ignore the message. You miss the point. Just like your forefathers. In fact, as Jesus goes on to point out, it is this generation to whom He is speaking in this time, in the first century, that reaches the culmination of the apostasy of Israel. As they reject their Messiah, and Jerusalem is overrun, In the early 70s A.D. and then for 2,000 years, God has turned His attention to the Gentiles. Only in due season, according to His providential purposes, will Israel uh, breathe again, be resurrected in His his, uh, restoration. But for 2,000 years, they have been bereft of the focused attention of God because they rejected finally and ultimately their Messiah. He says, I tell you, you lawyers, you have taken away the key of knowledge, verse 52. You yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who were entering. Those of us who are teachers need to pay a special attention to this, but all of us need to be mindful of it. What he's saying to the lawyers is the way you have handled the Word of God is you have taken away 
the passion and the heart of the people to have a relationship with the living God. And you have made religion an arduous, labor-intensive, burdensome task. You have taken the study of the Scriptures, which uh, are the living Word of God, and you have made them tedious and academic and rote. You have extrapolated rule upon rule upon rule to the point that you have not only entered the Scriptures yourselves, but you have taken away the key and the opportunity for those who would long to know God. And you have shut them out on the outside. Friends, there's something that we need to be aware of, and that is oftentimes people miss God because of our religion. We turn them off by our behavior. We adopt airs of spirituality and sanctimoniousness that, in effect, make the world look at us and think, well, in the best case scenario, we're just weird. Or worse. I have a book at home, the title of it is, Why Men Hate Church. I haven't read it yet. I can come up with some of my own ideas. But somehow or another, we have, we have created a religion in Christianity as a whole that leaves people void of hungering for a relationship with God. We make it about saying the right things, using the right language, dressing the right way, singing the right way coming to church in the right fashion, and on and on the the list goes, rather than about having a daily relationship with the living God. I wonder sometimes if we're aware how much our religion gets in the way of our witness. Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees and the lawyers because of their legalism. And you've heard me say this many times in the past, those of you that have been around a while, but I I repeat it this morning. Legalism always leads to one of three ends. It always leads down one of three trails. If you can remember this, it it will help you to understand the problem. There are those people who are wired in their aptitudes and their abilities to be rules keepers. They're just made that way. They tend to see things very black and white and very concrete, and they tend to like the rules that take them from point A to point B. And they appreciate systems that are developed to to work through the process in a prescribed manner that works. we can think of all kinds of institutions that, that are noted for that. Uh, I've been reading some novels uh, lately um, for entertainment, and uh, has to, one of them has to do with uh, a certain person in the military. And uh, no offense to any of you here who have military backgrounds, but the military operates on rules. If you didn't have the rules, it wouldn't work. <laughs> and they're very precise rules. I remember a friend of mine in Nashville that was uh, in officer's uh, training, and, uh, you know, he said that uh, when the uh, 
commanding officer said to show up at 0700, that he expected him to rap on the door at 0700, not at 0659 and 50 seconds, not at 0710 seconds, but at 0700, period. And if he didn't knock on the door, if he was early, get out and come back on time, which, of course, he couldn't do. And if he was late, you're late. And so he had to learn to have the watches synchronized and to wrap at just the right time. Now, whether that's true or not, maybe you could inform me. <laughs> but anyhow, that, that was the regulation. And the military runs on rules, and it has to have the rules. They have to be there. Most paramilitary organizations run on rules. Most bureaucracies run on rules. They need those rules to keep things on track. And some people are wired to do that. And they work well in those environments. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's gifts that we all need. Within, I don't mean every person needs them, but enough of us need them to keep everybody else on track, you know. So the trains run on time. But if you bring that attitude to your relationship with God and you make the mistake of making the rules the main thing, you run the risk of creating a faith that is dependent on dotting I's and crossing T's. And if you happen to be wired that way, Maybe you can pick out the ones you do well at and you can follow them. And the Pharisees are prime examples. And what you end up with is spiritual pride. Because as far as you're concerned, you're doing everything well. There's another kind of person that admires and appreciates the rules, but they just don't have the discipline to keep them. They're constantly running into a wall. The harder they try, the more they fail. You kind of have this in the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. I mean, he thought he had it all done. He says, righteousness as a Pharisee and concerning the law, I was blameless. You know, I had all the externals down. I went through the uh, hand-washing ritual just right. I did everything perfectly. I could keep from committing adultery. I could keep from stealing. I could keep from killing. I could keep from all these external things. But then one day, God opened my eyes to the fact that I was covetous. Covetous is not something you can see usually. It's something that goes on inside of you. And Paul said, I, I found out that I, I could not stop coveting. And I was running afoul of the law. And so, the, the harder he tried to be spiritual according to the rules, the more he failed. And he ultimately said in Romans 7, the, thi the, the things that I try hardest to do, I fail at, and the things I hate the most, I find myself constantly doing. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's nothing good in me. He had come to the point of despair. And legalism, if it doesn't lead to spiritual pride, will lead to despair. And then there's that third group of people that don't fit either one of those categories. They're the ones that say, you know what? The rules? Hogwash. I don't give one rip about the rules. I'm going to do as I please. 
I'm not getting involved in that mess. I'm going to live the way I want to live and call my own shots and make my own rules. I'm going to do life my way. They are absolute rebels. They are libertines. And they end up living lawless lives. Now, I will tell you the truth from a practical standpoint. They don't do well. If you try to live without any regulation or discipline, you're going to be in a mess in due season. But they keep pushing at that, and they've become rebels because they don't want anything to do with the requirements. But if you're going to have a legalistic religion, you are always going to produce one of three kinds of people. You're going to produce rebels who just throw out the baby with the bathwater. You're going to produce despair in the people who have enough wisdom to recognize they can't live up to it. Or you're going to produce spiritual pride among those who think they can. You're never going to end up in a relationship because God is not a rule. He's a person. And God is calling us to have a relationship with Him that is based on walking with Him and talking with Him. We, we mess people up in their praying because they somehow get the idea from us that they have to say, they have to speak the King James English. Oh Lord, thouest dost knowest. It's like, come on, talk, just talk. Just speak. We don't have to go through all that crazy language. We don't have to follow some ritual, but we do need to have a conversation with God. And the, and the more you love Him and the more you spend time with Him, the more you want to talk to Him. You don't have to read your Bible 15 minutes every day or four chapters a day or 23 verses a day or memorize two verses a week or whatever it is. I don't know. You don't have to do that. But you need to be in the Word and you need to be hiding it in your heart. However you do it, it needs to be a part of your communion with God. You need to be in the fellowship of believers. The Scripture says don't neglect and put that aside. What does all of that mean? It means that love for God arises within the heart of those who have been truly transformed. They have a hunger for the Word. They have a hunger to be in conversation They have a hunger to be with the people of God. You don't have to tell them to read their Bible four chapters a day. They just read their Bible. If you look inside your heart and you don't find any interest in the Scriptures, you have no desire to pray, you don't want to be with God's people, uh, you just uh, have no interest in those kinds of things, you need to find out what's in your heart because it's probably not good. But if you have a relationship with the living God, you are compelled by the Spirit of God within to naturally do those things that will lead you to spiritual depth. And Jesus is driving at that with these Pharisees. That which is in you is what matters. Not all these externals that you've made up. What is inside of you is what's important. Do you have God in your heart, calling you into relationship with Him. Do you recognize the difference between relationship and religion? Do you understand 
a life that is compelled by the love of God and not one that is driven by the requirements of regulation. We need to pay attention to Jesus' message to the Pharisees because we're far more like them than we care to admit. We need to be careful that we don't fall into their trap. Father, deliver us this morning from spiritual pride. Take away from us the illusion that by doing spiritual things we will be spiritual. Draw us into a relationship with you that arises from a transformed heart in love with you. From which spontaneous spirituality flows. That we might truly be lights shining in dark places. Not offensive to unbelievers, but compelling to those who long to know you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.